With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. All right, folks, and biblical theology, that is what we try to do here at the show. Theology matters with the blues, and... Well, we have a great show for you guys today as we're wrapping up our series on intelligent design. For those who missed the show last week, we had uh, Professor Ken Samples and uh, Jay Warner Wallace on talking about his new book, God's Crime Scene. So be sure to uh, go check out some of those past shows. You can reach us on Facebook at uh, Theology Matters with the Palouse. There you'll find podcast we've been doing for around three years now, and uh, we do different topics dealing with apologetics and theology. We've been able to host uh, several debates, and those seem to be pretty popular, so feel free to uh, get on our our page and look at those, and you'll be able to access uh, all all of our Facebook posts and our podcasts. Uh, today we're going to have Casey Luskin from the Discovery Institute on, and we're going to be looking at uh, the new book, Debating Darwin's Doubt. And the second hour, we should be joined by uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer and uh, talk about some of the chapters he has contributed to that as well, so stay with us. Uh, real quickly, October, I believe it's 15th and 16th, uh, they will be doing the National Conference on Christian Apologetics, and this will be held at uh, Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Folks, if you've never been to the National Apologetics Conference, I'm telling you, it's it's one of the best uh, best times that, uh, if you're, especially if you're a fan of apologetics, that you can have. They bring in just the best of the best speakers, and it's always a, a great time, and that will be a full two-day event. 
And then those who are involved with Ratio Christi, uh, we are having a two-day symposium starting Saturday around 5 o'clock. They do the dinner uh, and kind of hang out that night. And then all day Sunday uh, is a day where they do two different tracks. They normally do science, uh, science track and then a philosophy track. Uh, it's just a great time to connect with other Ratio Christi uh, leaders and students and highly recommend it. So if you're able to come to that, uh, we definitely plan that weekend in October. And you can message us for more details about that. So without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce our first guest, uh, Casey Luskin of the Discovery Institute. Uh, he is a research coordinator for the Center for Science and Culture. Uh, Casey assists and defends scientists, educators, and students who seek to uh, freely study, research, and teach about the scientific debate over Darwinian evolution and intelligent design. Casey, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Great to be on your show. Thanks so much. Absolutely great to We've had you on a few times in the past, and uh, it's always always been a good time. Yeah, it's great great to be back. Yeah, so what's what's going on these days out at the Discovery Institute? <laughs> uh, we're very busy. Uh, we're always way overworked and not enough people to do way too many things. Um, let's see. Uh, I guess, you know, we wanted to talk about the new book, uh, Debating Darwin's Doubt, that came out uh, a little over a month ago, um, talking about the evidence for intelligent design and the Cambrian explosion. Uh, that's a big thing that happened. Um, I, I personally have been doing a lot of editing of books for some of our fellows who have uh, books coming out in the next uh, year or two here. Uh, I probably can't go into details on that, and I don't want to spill the beans, but there are some really exciting um, uh, books that are going to be coming out by some ID folks in the in the in the future, and uh, looking forward to seeing those. I've had the privilege of being able to edit those, and and they're going to be great books, I think. Wonderful. Now, uh, real quick before we get into the book, are you guys <coughs> going to be at the uh, apologetics conference this year? You know, I should know the answer to that. Um, I was there last year, and I participated in the screening of the the documentary The Privileged Species that uh, yes. basically featured Michael Denton looking at the universe and the laws of nature, uh, physics and chemistry, and showing how they are finely tuned, not just for life, but specifically for, for life with human beings. Um, and I was able to be at the premiere last year and participated in a Q&A session um, after the video showed. Um, I don't actually know the answer to your question if anyone from Discovery Institute is going to be there this year. I wish I, I should know the answer to that, but I don't. Oh, that's okay. Um, I haven't heard any rumblings, though, around the office, so maybe maybe we're not going to be there this year. I guess I don't know for sure. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's that's okay. I remember I was I was uh, actually there for that screening last year, and, uh, wow, it was a packed house for that screening. I remember it was such that. a I great video. No, I remember seeing yeah. you there, Devin, and, and it was a packed house. It was really encouraging. It was standing room only, and we had a great uh, discussion afterwards. Some great questions were asked. Um, I had, it was a lot of fun and really encouraging to see how many people turned out for that. Yeah, that was a, that was a great time. So hopefully, imagine you guys will probably be back again. <laughs> so that'll be, that'll be good. All right, let's, let's I, look I a little so. bit. 
Yeah. Let's look a little bit about uh, kind of what we're talking about today. Now, for those maybe who are listening and don't um, know a whole lot about intelligent design, maybe you could just take a, a couple minutes briefly to just talk about what is intelligent design, uh, just to kind of give a little backdrop of why this work is even important. Sure. So, yeah, what is intelligent design? Intelligent design is a scientific theory which says that many aspects of life and the universe are best explained by an intelligent cause rather than an undirected cause like natural selection. And ID finds evidence from a variety of scientific fields, including, of course, biology, where we see that there is information in our genetic code, a digital language-based sequence of nucleotides in our DNA molecules that forms an information-rich sequence. And uh, intelligent design sees evidence in that information in our DNA. Uh, there's also biomolecular machines, which are submicroscopic. Literally, they function like machines, um, submicroscopic protein-based structures that are running around our cells performing all kinds of important cellular functions. And without these molecular machines, your cells and your body cannot function. And these, these machines, in many respects, resemble human design machines, and so intelligent design also finds evidence there. And then a final area where maybe ID finds a big part of its evidence would be at the level of the actual universe, where we see that the physical laws and constants of nature are finely tuned to allow for life to exist. And if the laws of nature were only slightly different, then we could not have life in our universe. And so this is another area where we see evidence of purpose and planning and design in our universe. And, of course, I can get into a lot of that evidence more detail if you want, but that's a very basic outline of what intelligent design is. All right, wonderful. Um, in, I think it was, what, 2013, uh, Dr. Meyer had written, written the book um, Darwin's Doubt. Talk a little bit about that book. Uh, what was it, what was his purpose in writing that? What was it trying to address? Sure, so Darwin's Doubt actually points to maybe even a, an additional area where we see evidence for design in nature. And so Darwin's out, and Darwin's out, Stephen Meyer, and by the way, Stephen Meyer is a Cambridge University-trained philosopher of science. Um, he talks about a weakness in his own theory that Darwin recognized in Origin of, of the Species. And this pertained to the fossil record and the origin of animals in the fossil record, uh, very deep back in the fossil record. And what, what Darwin recognized, essentially, is that when you look at the fossil record, we see that the various major groups of animals, which today we call the animal phyla, but even Darwin in his own time saw that the major groups of animals appear in the fossil record abruptly, without any clear evolutionary precursors, without those sort of intermediate and transitional forms which had been long predicted to exist by Darwin's theory. And so Darwin recognized that this posed a challenge to his theory. But, of course, Darwin, the way that Darwin explained away the lack of transitional form was to say, well, we still know very little about the fossil record, and the fossil record is also very incomplete. And so maybe in the coming decades, as we have more and more paleontologists going out and studying fossils, we will find these inter intermediate forms, these evolutionary transitions, showing how the various major types of animals evolve. Um, and he also said, you know, Maybe it's simply the case that a lot of these ancestors to the animals simply uh, were lost 
because the fossil record is very incomplete and it does not preserve everything. And so Darwin sort of gave these as his escape clauses for why the fossil evidence did not support his theory of evolution. Well, so here we are now, you know, 150 years after Darwin, and the problem of the missing ancestral fossils to the animals that appear in the Cambrian period has only gotten worse. We now know, based upon the actually discovery of many other fossils around the world, that this is a worldwide pattern. We see it in China. We see it in Canada. We see it in Russia. We see it in Europe. We see it in Australia. We see it in many different places. And when we look at the fossil record, that there is this abrupt appearance of major animal groups at the beginning of the Cambrian period, some 500 to 530 million years ago. And we do not see ancestors to these uh, animal groups in the fossil record. So this problem that Darwin recognized in his own time has actually only gotten worse as we've collected more and more fossils. It's not gotten better for Darwin's theory. And we know that, yes, the fossil record is not 100% complete. That is true. But we now know enough about the fossil record to say, you know, we have a good idea of what's out there and what's waiting to be found. And most paleontologists today would say that the Cambrian explosion, that's the name of this abrupt appearance of all these different types of animals. Most paleontologists today would say that the Cambrian explosion is not just the artifact of an incomplete fossil record, that it actually is a real event in the history of life where most of the major groups of animals appear abruptly without evolutionary precursors. Okay, so that's sort of the, the first third of Darwin's doubt right there. Stephen Meyer goes through and looks at the fossil evidence and says, you know what, there is a major problem for Darwin's theory here, that we have all these major groups of animals that are appearing without evolutionary precursors. And then he asks the question, okay, well, what would it take to build these animals? How, how would you need to, what would you need to explain to account for the origin of these animals? And he says, okay, well, these different types of animals, they all have many different types of genes and very diverse types of genomes, different body parts, uh, different body plans, different organs, different types of tissues. There's a lot of new genetic structures that would need and genetic information they would need to arise to explain the origin of these diverse animal body plants that appear in the Cambrian explosion. And what Steve Meyer does is he looks at some of the various explanations that have put, been put forth by evolutionary biologists for where new genetic information comes from. You would need lots of new genetic information to explain the origin of the proteins and new tissues and new organs and so forth to explain the origin of these new body plants. And so Stephen Meyer finds that essentially the standard Darwinian explanation of natural selection and random mutation is not up to the challenge of explaining the origin of the new information that is necessary at the genetic level to explain the origin of all these complex features like new proteins, new cell types, new tissues, new organs, new body plants. All those things cannot be explained by the process of unguided natural selection acting upon random mutation. Then he asks, okay, well, if not natural selection, what cause could explain the origin of these animal body plants? And he says, well, where in our experience do, does new information come from? Where in our experience do uh, the hierarchically organized structures, like what we see in these animal body plants, where does that kind of 
um, complexity arise. And he says, in our experience, it has only one known cause, and that is intelligence. Only intelligent design can explain the origin of the language-based digital code that you would need to generate to produce these new complex structures, like new proteins and cell types and tissues and organs that would be necessary to generate all the diverse body plants that we see in the Cambrian animals. So he says that intelligent design is the best explanation for the origin of the complex animal body plants that arise in the Cambrian explosion. Okay, so that's maybe the, the, the five-minute or six-minute Cliff Notes version of Stephen Meyer's <laughs> book, Darwin's Doubt. But I suggest that if folks are interested in this, that they actually pick up the book. I mean, the book goes into far more detail, and if you want to be equipped to actually be able to, you know, talk about these sorts of things with your friends, you're going to want to pick up the book itself because it, it gives you these, these, the arguments and the evidence that supports what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a phenomenal book, folks. And I'll, I'll put the link up on the on the sh- on the the show program there for people to get that. But it is it is a phenomenal book. So, with that said, I mean, it sounds like it's an open and shit case. So, why did why did you guys uh, write another book debating Darwin's doubt? This is kind of the <laughs> sequel uh, or the the defense of. But talk talk about that for for a few moments. Why write this other book? Yeah, that's a great question, Devin. So now, obviously, uh, many of their folks out there that don't agree with intelligent design, um, they think that processes like unguided natural selection and random mutation actually can create new meaningful genetic information. Um, they think that you can explain the origin of animal body plans or that you can see maybe even uh, in a few limited cases some intermediate forms in the fossil record that are supposedly documenting the origin of these Cambrian animals. So there are folks out there that, that do feel differently, that disagree with Dr. Meyer's argument. And so as, after Dr. Meyer's book came out in uh, June of 2013, we began to see quite a few reviews and responses to his book coming out. There were reviews that came out in venues like uh, The New Yorker or uh, National Review or American Biology Teacher, even uh, the very prestigious journal Science printed a review of his book from a very uh, well-respected paleontologist at UC Berkeley named Charles Marshall. And so there were quite a few responses uh, to Stephen Meyer's book, Darwin's Doubt. And what we did is we wrote responses to the responses. We wrote rebuttals to the rebuttals of his book. Uh, We wanted to ask the question, you know, did Dr. Meyer's arguments hold up? Maybe they wouldn't hold up. So what we found as we started to write these responses to Dr. Meyer's critics is that actually the critics were not addressing the central argument of Darwin's doubt. They never actually explained the origin of new genetic information that would be necessary to build the animal body plan. And in fact, in most cases, the objections that they raised were actually already covered in Dr. Meyer's original book, Darwin's Doubt. And we found you know, that basically Dr. Meyer had already dealt with and answered these objections in the book um, and we then went on and actually did a lot more research to further debunk these, these responses, uh, talking about supposed intermediate fossils or the supposed creative power of natural selection um, or what really was the length of the Cambrian explosion, how long did it really take for it to happen, or evolutionary concepts like cladistics and whether that solved the mystery of the missing ancestral fossils that became Cambrian animals. We went through all these objections and found that they really don't 
answer Dr. Meyer's central argument, and they actually don't even address the argument that they were trying to answer, which was to explain away the Cambridge explosion. So I can certainly get into a lot of detail, Devin, if you want, on a lot of those objections, but the, the book that we just came out with back in uh, July, a couple months ago, is titled Debating Darwin's Doubt, and it basically is a collection of our responses to critics of Darwin's Doubt and how we're showing that Dr. Meyer's book uh, really did hold up in its arguments and that the case for intelligent design is very strong in the face of criticism. Yes, I know it was sent a copy, and it's almost uh, it's well over 300 pages and uh, just really, really good stuff. So maybe we can look at a few of the chapters. I know as I, as I was, was going through this, uh, I noticed you, you seem to write a whole lot uh, of this book, actually. You did a lot of the chapters. So I so thought it would be good to have you on and, and uh, talk about that. So chapter three, uh, you have a chapter entitled Rush to Judgment. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about how, uh, what was it, uh, June 19th, when the book was made available for purchase, <laughs> some of the uh, 9,400-word review there. Yeah, that was kind of a funny story, Devin. And I appreciate you, you know, asking me on to, to write about this. I was sort of given the task. I, I, I actually served as one of Dr. Meyer's research assistants um, as he wrote Darwin's Doubt. So I was very familiar with the arguments in the book, and I have a background in earth sciences, geology. I've studied a lot of these fossil issues in the past, and, and this was sort of, it was not new to me. So when Darwin's doubt came out, you know, I sort of said, okay, if, if there are, you know, responses and there are uh, responses that are worth responding to and, and we have something that ought to be said, then, then I'd be happy to help out with that. So I ended up, yeah, I ended up being involved in writing a lot of the responses to critics of Darwin's doubt. Um, and it was funny because, as you just said, that within about 24 hours, the very next day after Darwin's Doubt came out, there was a review that was posted by a person who was at the time a graduate student in biology at UC Berkeley. His name is Nick Maskey. Uh, he's since actually gone on to get his Ph.D., but he was a uh, Ph.D. student in biology at Berkeley at the time, and he wrote this 9,400-word review. And a lot of folks were saying, okay, well, look, uh, we're sure that Nick Maskey's a smart guy, and I'm sure that he's a fast reader. But it's hard to read uh, essentially a 500-word book. I'm sorry, 500-page book, which is what the length of Darwin's Doubt was. It's hard to read a 500-page book in about 24 hours and at the same time bang out a 9,400-word review. And so we kind of came to the sort of tentative conclusion that most likely he wrote most of that review before the book came out. And then he maybe sprinkled in a few additions here and there, you know, once he actually got the copy on his Kindle, you know, the day that it officially came out. Well, you know, he claims yeah. that he read it during lunch breaks and in between classes and a little bit working at night. And, and he actually did write the whole thing and, and read the book, uh, you know, within a day of it coming out. Maybe he did. Maybe he really is a speed reader. And, and I'm willing to grant him that if, if that's what he wants to say. It, it doesn't really matter. What was interesting, I think more interesting, was the substance, or maybe lack thereof, of the review. Um, one of the main complaints that he made in his review was that Stephen Meyer had made sort of basic errors, as Nick Massey called it, regarding the classification of certain Cambrian animals, namely uh, some really bizarre animals called the anomalocaridids and another group of famous Cambrian animals called lobopods. Um, so what did he claim that Meyer got wrong? Well, with the anomalocaridids, these were sort of the top predators 
of the Cambrian world, okay? So you understand that in the Cambrian period, pretty much all animal life, really all animal life, lived underwater. So we're talking about nothing but sea life at that time. And the biggest predator of the Cambrian seas was this really bizarre-looking animal called Anomalocarus. It had two stuck eyes on the front of its head and two um, sort of limb appendages that stuck out from the front of its face and sort of bent underneath its, its head that then could scoop up prey into a round circular mouth that was on the underside of its head. And it would swim along with sort of these lobe-like flaps on, on the side of its body, uh, swimming through the Cambrian Seas. And it was, it was pretty much the big kahuna of the Cambrian Seas. It grew up to about a meter in length. And these anomalocardids, or various species of them, were probably pretty fearsome, menacing things if you were a small little Cambrian animal. You did not want to encounter one of these things. Well, there's been a lot of debate over exactly how we should classify these strange Cambrian animals like the anomalocardids. Some people say that they are uh, arthropods or very closely related to arthropods. Some people would say that maybe they're nothing like an arthropod. Um, there's been a lot of debate on that. And Stephen Meyer uh, mentions actually this debate in his book, Darwin's Doubt. Well, Nick Natsky got quite worked up because he said that there's sort of this consensus view that Anomalocarus is what you would call a stem group arthropod. That is something that shares some, but not all, of the traits that define modern arthropods. And so a stem group arthropod is supposed to be sort of an evolutionary intermediate leading up to the arthropods. Well, uh, and, and so he sort of faulted Stephen Meyer for misclassifying uh, anomalocarus and not understanding the evolutionary significance of anomalocarus. Well, in the response I wrote to Nick Natsky, I said, actually, when you look at what um, Cambrian experts have said about this strange animal, they said exactly what Steve Meyer said, that it might be closely related to arthropods, it might not be. There's a lot of debate and discussion. So actually what Steve Meyer said on that point was smack dab in the middle of what the consensus view is about how we should classify anomalocarus. Um, as for the lobopods, Nick Matthew said that Stephen Meyer was wrong to call them a, an animal phyla, uh, or phylum, I should say. Um, animal phyla are the largest group of animals, basically. They're the largest classification category um, in the famous Linnaean taxonomic hierarchy of classification. You, know, you have kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And uh, right after kingdom, we have kingdom animalia, you get to the phyla. And there's all kinds of different animal phyla. You know, we belong to phylum vertebrata or phylum chordata. Uh, there's other phyla like the arthropods, arthropoda. There's uh, phylum mollusca, which would include mollusks, nails, and octopus. Um, there's uh, phylum echinodermata, which includes the echinoderm, things like uh, uh, starfish and sea urchins. Phylum nidaria, which includes jellyfish. We could go on and on talking about different animal phyla. Well, some folks have said that there are these strange animals known from the Cambrian period called the lobopods. They basically look like little worms with legs. And some people have said that they belong to a phylum that they call Lobopodia. And there are a variety of actual experts from Cambrian, uh, the field of Cambrian paleontology that have discussed this phylum Lobopodia, that it is a phylum of these strange uh, worm-like creatures with legs that live in the Cambrian period. And so Steve Meyer in Darwin's Doubt, he references at a couple points phylum Lobopodia. No big deal. 
Well, Nick Matthews got very worked up about this, saying, oh, this is, again, evidence that Stephen Meyer is making these basic errors. He's ignorant of, uh, you know, modern evolutionary thinking about these uh, Cambrian animals, and he really doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, in response to Nick Matthews, again, we cited a number of authorities that show that they have called the lobopods a phylum and pretty much in exact agreement with Stephen Meyer. So what we came to the conclusion was that really uh, Nick Matsky was looking for sort of a quick and dirty way to attack Steve Meyer's book without really addressing the argument. The key part about Nick Matsky's argument is that he never addressed Steve Meyer's central point, which is that the standard Darwinian mechanism of random mutation and natural selection cannot explain the origin of new information in, that's necessary to build the animal body plans that appear in the Cambrian. He never even attempted to tackle that central argument of Stephen Meyer's book. Instead, he nitpicked about sort of small uh, side issues, and those nitpicks were actually wrong. But this was sort of the quality of responses that we were getting. And Nick Nasty did make another argument about, about statistics, which uh, we can talk about in more detail. Actually, Steve Meyer and myself and David Berlinski all wrote about Nick Matsky's cladistic arguments in debating Darwin's doubt, um, but that's a whole other topic if you want to get into that. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, two things real quick. One, I wanted to read this. Uh, there was a quote here on page 28, I guess, uh, that's from Matsky. He writes, uh, here it is completely clear that the creationists or idealists are arrogant enough to call down uh, God from heaven to cover for their ignorance basically because they're unwilling to do the basic due diligence and hard work required to get a basic understanding of the topic uh, they're commenting on. I'm not sure that most long-lived religious traditions actually support that kind of behavior. And I think what's just surprising is, and you actually have, a, I think, a chapter in here on this, is just the hostility and the anger that seems to um, just come out from people when you talk about this. It's there's no charity, there's no respect. It is just, um, you know, if you believe this stuff, you're an idiot type of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right, Devin. And and this is definitely sort of a teachable moment for your listeners. If you go out and you make arguments for intelligent design, you can do all your research and get all your facts straight. You will often be met not with rational, calm, and collective responses, you'll be met with name-calling, with attacks on your character. You know, essentially what Nick Maskey is saying is that Steve Meyer is a liar for Jesus, that he's, you know, he's telling falsehoods in order to advance his argument. Well, as we just saw, the, the quote-unquote errors and falsehoods that Nick Maskey accused Steve Meyer of making, they actually went belly up when we looked at them more closely. But, you know, this is all a very deliberate strategy that critics like Nick Matsky engage in. They deliberately try to use this sort of uh, nasty and uncivil name-calling and uh, incendiary rhetoric against ID proponents. And their goal is to try to tar us with this label that we are you know, dishonest and untrustworthy people. And so if you're a member of the public out there trying to figure out who to believe, don't trust the ID proponents. So uh, I don't even think that Nick Matsky is necessarily himself uh, a very angry guy. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. He is deliberately trying to paint Steve Meyer and many other ID opponents, myself included. He's deliberately trying to paint us as immoral, dishonest, evil people because it's part of a, a strategy that he's using to try to get people not to trust us. It's his way of trying to win the argument 
not by actually addressing the argument, but by attacking the person who's making the argument. This is called the genetic fallacy, where you attack the source of the argument rather than the argument itself. So, again, Nick Nasty didn't even address Stephen Meyer's central argument in Darwin's Doubt. Instead, he went after attacking Steve Meyer's character. Unfortunately, this is, again, very common among critics of intelligence design that they will use this really nasty form of personal attack uh, rather than actually engaging our arguments. And, again, this is a teachable moment because when people have the evidence um, and the arguments on their side, they tend to make very fact-based arguments. When they don't, they tend to pound the table and get, you know, like you said, get kind of angry and use this nasty rhetoric. So the fact that critics like Nick Nasty are doing that rather than engaging their arguments, that tells you something about the strength of, of their position. And as you said, Devin, we actually had a chapter later on in the book that, that talked about one um, very thoughtful reader of Darwin's Doubt who was actually really um, swayed towards the ID position when he saw the nasty personal attacks coming from critics like Nick Matsky. For him, he said, this makes me realize that you guys really don't, you guys being the critics of ID, that he said, you know, this makes him realize that ID critics don't really have good arguments when they resort to all this nasty name-calling and personal attack. So, again, I mean, Nick Matsky, he's a nice guy. He's a very smart uh, scientist. I have nothing to say negative against him personally, but I do think that his uh, style of rhetoric and the way that he um, conducts himself in this debate speaks volumes about, you know, whether the evidence really is on his side and sort of why, why does he resort to these kinds of tactics rather than just addressing our arguments. That tells you something. Yeah, I think it does. I think the biggest thing, too, is what it shows is, uh, unfortunately, it's very effective. Because in the public, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of the interviews with Dr. Meyer and that on uh, that one with uh, with Abrams on MSNBC is just oh, yeah. <laughs> a br- brutal one to watch. But what you see is they don't deal with the arguments, they don't deal with the evidence. They just uh, you're a creationist, and then that's you know that's all that needs to be said. You know, next <laughs> type of thing. It's just it's it's sad because it seems to be effective. Uh, in the public, where the, the arguments themselves, a lot of times, are just dismissed for uh, just for labeling and tarring and, and feathering someone. So, yeah, you know, I tend to be a little bit a little bit of an optimist on this. I, I agree with you; it is disconcerting to see people making these kinds of arguments. But I think that actually a lot of people realize intuitively that when somebody's using personal attacks rather than reasonable, you know, fact-based scientific arguments. That that's a sign of weakness on that person's part who's making those personal attacks. I right. encounter a lot of folks actually that have emailed me, uh, many emails that I've received over the years saying, you know what, the fact that these people are resorting to this, that just shows that actually you guys have made a good argument. You know, if they had a good response, <laughs> you'd be hearing it. The fact that they are making these this name calling, that shows that they don't have a good response to you. So I think a lot of folks are actually. I, I like to think, and I, I think this, I think people are actually pretty smart on this, and they can recognize a weak response when they see one. But you're right; some people Absolutely. are swayed by it, you know. And so we need to, you know, again, this is a good teachable moment, and somebody to keep in mind. Um, and also, for your own sake, if you are out there defending intelligent minds, and you receive this kind of uh, pushback, it's not fun. I'm not going to lie; it's not fun to see people saying nasty things about your character, especially when it's completely not true. That's really not fun. But if it does happen to you, be encouraged. You're in good company. I mean, you have people like Steve Meyer, and 
pretty much every leading ID theorist has experienced the same kind of response. So you're in good character. Don't worry. It's not you. The problem is not you. The problem is with the person who's, who's making this. And those personal attacks don't say anything about you. It only says something about the state of mind and the state of the argument of the person who's trying to oppose you. So maybe even be encouraged in a weird way when you get personal attacks back. It, it might show that you actually made a good argument and your opponent doesn't have anything reasonable to say in response. <laughs> That's right, baby. You have a nerve. All right, Chapter 6, uh, and, and it's funny, as we're talking about this, uh, Chapter 6, you have how sudden, uh, how sudden was the Cambrian explosion. And um, in that, uh, Natsuki, you have, uh, you, you said in the debating government staff, actually misquoted Meyer several times, uh, saying that he referred to the Cambrian explosion as instantaneous. I just think it's funny that they are attacking, you know, Dr. Meyer's character, and in reality, they're the ones that are, are misrepresenting and uh, accusing him of saying things he never said. But uh, talk about Chapter 6. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Devin. So um, in his 9,400-word review of Darwin's Doubt, um, Nick Nasty claims that Stephen Meyer said that the Cambrian explosion was an instantaneous event. And he put that, Nick Nasty put that word in quotes as if Stephen Meyer had said that. Well, nowhere in Darwin's Doubt that Stephen Meyer called the Cambrian explosion instantaneous. So this was a hint to us that maybe Nick Nasty had not really read the book, or if he did, he didn't really read it very carefully because he was sort of inventing quotes that he was then attributing to Steve Meyer. But one of the points that was made in, in sort of the, you know, we can go, this is not about Nick Nasty, we can go way beyond this here. One of the common rejoinders he got was down was the claim that the Cambrian explosion was actually a very long event. It took maybe, you know, as long as, 40 to 80 million years, which uh, they would say is enough time to evolve the animals. I don't think that's true, even if it was 80 million years, but, you know, they would say that it was a very long time. The amount of, the length of time that Steve Meyer uh, gives for the Cambrian explosion in Darwin's Doubt is about 5 to 10 million years. And so uh, the New Yorker, when it reviewed Darwin's Doubt, um, by the way, Darwin's Doubt made the New York Times bestsellers list. And so I think that that might have affected why you know, certain venues like the New Yorker uh, wanted to very quickly try to pounce on the book to refute it. And so what the New Yorker right. did is uh, they called up Nick Nasty and said, okay, well, what's wrong with the book? And Nick Nasty, I'm sure he said lots of things that he thought was wrong with it, but one of the things he mentioned was that Stephen Meyer basically um, understates the length of the Cambrian explosion and that it was not just a 5 to 10 million year event. It was probably more like a 20 to, you know, 25, 30 million plus year event in the fossil record. And so what I did is I decided to go back and ask, okay, well, what do leading experts say about the length of the Cambrian explosion? What do they say about how long it took? Uh, do they agree or disagree with Steve Meyer? And that's what turned into Chapter 6 of the book, and I basically was actually overwhelming what I found. Expert after expert and authority after authority agreed with Steve Meyer that the standard right. length of the Cambrian explosion in the fossil record was about 5 to 10 million years. Very rarely would you find people saying that it was longer than that. And if they did, they were usually going into events that people would not say are part of the Cambrian explosion. I mean, you can define whatever you want to be part of a, 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 an event if that's what you want to do, but what they would define as the Cambrian explosion would be something far outside of it. The vast majority of the experts that I found actually defined the Cambrian explosion exactly as Steve Meyer did and found that it was about a 5 to 10 million year event. And so I thought, I thought that 
we found basically that Steve Meyer was, again, smack dab in the middle of the consensus view when it came to the length of the Cambrian explosion. Yeah, yeah, I know on pages uh, 84 and 85 you have that. Uh, you have all the quotes right there, at least 13 different quotes uh, <laughs> regarding that. So it's it's really encouraging. I mean, you guys have done your homework. It's obvious you've done your homework, and, and it's really easy to see who's mistaken. Well, I'd like to think so. One of the, I think, um, nice things that happened right before Steve Meyer's book came out in June of 2013, another book came out by two leading experts um, of the Cambrian explosion. Their names are uh, Douglas Irwin and James Valentine. And they published a book, actually the title of the book was The Cambrian Explosion. It came out about two months before Meyer's book came out. And in that book, they actually agreed with, and they, they, these people are not pro-intelligent design. I, I want to make that really clear. They did not support Meyer's arguments about intelligent design. But they admitted in that book, or I didn't see admitted it, it's their view in that book that the Cambrian explosion is about a 10 million year event, that the Cambrian explosion was a real event in the fossil record. It's not just an artifact of an imperfect fossil record. And they also found that the sort of, you know, rates of diversification during the Cambrian period were much higher than they would have been really at any other point in the history of animals. And so they said, look, something really weird was going on here. And maybe they, they said we cannot even use standard uniformitarian explanations to account for this. And they even went on to say that the sort of evolutionary solution to the Cambrian explosion, they said it's unresolved right now. So anyway, that, that's, all that is just to say that Stephen Meyer had some very significant authorities backing him up. Um, and it was nice to have that book come out right before hit, Meyer's book came out because it really supported some of Steve Meyer's central claims, at least about the fossil record and the Cambrian explosion. Right. Very good. All right. Uh, chapter nine, um, you wrote cladistics to the rescue. So you had me uh, doing my homework today looking up <laughs> what in the world does cladistics mean. So give a little maybe an explanation of what is cladistics, and uh, we can talk a little bit about this chapter. Yeah, so this is kind of funny. So I bet most of the world had not really heard of or cared much about cladistics before the whole debate here came out over Darwin's doubt. But it did certainly bring this into the forefront. Um, and this went back to actually some of the uh, responses that came from various critics of Darwin's doubt, like Nick Maskey being one of them, uh, basically said that we can use this method of classification called cladistics to understand that certain fossils actually are the intermediate that, that Stephen Meyer and others have said are missing from the Cambrian ancestral fossils, okay? And so what is cladistics? Well, cladistics is a method of classification which tries to group organisms according to their degree of similarity. And cladistics uses what are called shared derived similarity, where basically if you have a, a, a trait that is found in a group of organisms and all members of that group tracing back to their common ancestor have that trait, um, then you would call that a shared derived character, okay? So what Steve Myers, uh, what, what Nasky says is that there are some organisms which might share some but not all of these characters that will define a group. Uh, so, for example, arthropods are defined by a number of different traits. Uh, they're defined by uh, their jointed legs, their jointed appendages. Um, they're defined by um, their paired... Uh, or they're, they're defined by their compound eye. 
and they have other traits as well. So if you have an organism that has some but not all of those arthropod traits, then Nick Maskey would say that this is evidence of something that sort of is maybe evolving or is related to an ancestor of arthropods. And he would call it sort of an intermediate leading to arthropods. Um, and so what I talked about in that chapter is that really um, Nick Maskey did not account for these evolutionary intermediates. So when you actually look at the fossil record, um, you cannot arrange these organisms, even using cladistics, into a nice, neat evolutionary tree that shows how arthropods evolved. Uh, they don't fit into a nice tree-like pattern. Um, instead, you get sort of a mishmash or a mosaic pattern that does not fit the evolutionary tree that's predicted by cladistics. Um, Steve Meyer actually also had a great discussion of cladistics in his chapter. Uh, actually, it was chapter um, uh, 8, I believe, and also in the... Uh, I'm sorry, chapter uh, four, I believe, of Darwin's Doubt, Debating Darwin's Doubt, and also in the epilogue to Darwin's Doubt. And he made the point there that cladistics helps you to classify organisms, but it does not actually explain how those organisms arose. So Nick Nasky could cite cladistics all he wants, this sort of method of you know, grouping organisms which are more similar and claiming that they're more closely related, um, but that does not explain how those complex features arose in those organisms. It, it cannot account for sort of the cause of those relationships and the, or the cause of those um, organismal traits that it uses to classify the relationships of those organisms. So that's a major, that's a, that's a, a point that we should not miss, that basically cladistics cannot answer the fundamental question that Meyer asks in Darwin's doubt, and that is how did the Cambrian animals evolve their complex structures? How did the information arise to produce their body plan? Cladistics fundamentally does not even try to address that question. Yeah, I know on page uh, 115 of the of the book there, you 115 and 16, I think you get four four reasons. Uh, you see Dr. Meyer uh, makes four main arguments uh, against Matsky. Um so for those people that are kind of wanting a little more on that, uh, pages 115 and 16, I think you guys go over the, the, the four arguments with that. Uh, one of the things you also state, page 122, um, you're talking about the um, uh, authorities would agree that Maskey, uh, Maskey overstates uh, his cladistic case, cladistic case as well. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that or? Yeah, sure. I mean, as another example where I think the authorities are actually on Stephen Meyer's side here rather than Nick Matthews. Nick Matthews claims that cladistics has revealed sort of this nice, clean grade of evolutionary intermediates leading to arthropods um, in the Cambrian period. And when you actually look at the technical literature, you see that um, experts in Cambrian classification, experts in cladistics, have said that the origin of arthropods is uh, one of the problems currently facing researchers. And actually, Irwin and Valentine in their book, The Cambrian Explosion, say this debate is far from settled, illustrating the complexities of understanding the evolutionary pathways among these groups. Um, uh, Gregory Edgecombe, who's an arthropod expert, he says arthropod phylogeny is sometimes presented as an almost hopeless puzzle, wherein all possible competing hypotheses have support. Um, even one of the citations that Matthew gave when he was trying to explain the origins of arthropods, this same authority that Matthew cited uh, states, quote, the origin of arthropods is a contentious issue. 
there is little consensus regarding the details of their origin. Well, the reason that there is a lack of consensus about the details of how arthropods arose is because when you look at the fossil evidence, they don't produce a nice, clean grade of evolutionary intermediates where you sort of see the gradual evolution of one arthropod trait after another until you finally get to arthropods. You don't see that in the fossil record. Instead, you right. see a mishmash of traits among different types of organisms that cannot be put into a nice, neat, logistics <coughs> tree that shows how arthropods arose. Really what you see, what you see basically, in my opinion, is reusage of parts or common design of different parts in a manner that does not fit the tree-like pattern that is predicted by common descent. That really is what you see, uh, in my opinion. But, uh, and so really, when you look at the, the literature, you dig into the technical literature, you find out, okay, Nick Maskey was really, you know, I would say he was bluffing when he said that the evidence reveals sort of a nice, neat, clean um, lineage of intermediates leading to arthropods uh, in the Cambrian period. The other funny thing here is that a lot of these so-called intermediates that Maskey would cite they're not even from the Cambrian period. In fact, many of them actually come long after the arthropods first appear in the fossil record. And so what, what Steve Meyer says is if you're trying to explain why all these ancestors to the Cambrian animals are missing, it doesn't help to postulate, you know, evolutionary intermediates that actually require even more missing fossils. You know, you have all these missing ancestors, but this cladistics approach creates a, a situation where you have to postulate all these lineages, uh, that, uh, these evolutionary lineages for which there's no evidence in the fossil record. So it actually exacerbates the problem of missing fossils rather than solving it. I thought that was a great point that Steve Meyer made. Wonderful. Folks, uh, if you'd like to talk to Casey, uh, the number to call in is 760-542. 3907-760-542-3907, and we're taking your, your calls. And uh, Chapter 13, you have a chapter, um, Small Shelly Fossils and the Cambrian Explosion. Uh, chapter yes. 13, yeah. And there's a quote yeah, from so Dr. Meyer. Go ahead. Huh? No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a, a quote from Dr. Meyer that says the Cambrian period uh, 543 million years ago is marked by the appearance of small shelly uh, fossils consisting of tubes, cones, and possibly spines and scales of larger animals. These fossils, together with trace fossils, gradually become more abundant and diverse as one moves upward in the earliest Cambrian strata. Sure, so, so this is what is called the small shelly fossils. And uh, some folks would cite these small shelly fossils um, as if they explain the Cambrian explosion. So what are the small shelly fossils? Well, it's exactly what you just quoted Stephen Meyer saying in Darwin's doubt. There are these small sort of ambiguous uh, shelly-like fossils. Uh, folks, generally speaking, are not clear on exactly what most of them are but they do appear at the base of the Cambrian period and they become more abundant as you move upward in the, in the Cambrian. And some people have cited this to say that this um, causes uh, Steve Meyer to exaggerate the apparent suddenness of the Cambrian explosion. In fact, uh, Charles Marshall, who is the UC Berkeley paleontologist who reviewed Darwin's doubt in the journal Science, 
he says that he cites the small shelly fossils sort of as a supposed solution to the uh, explaining, you know, this weird abrupt appearance of the animals in the Cambrian period. Well, the bottom line is that really nobody out there in the literature sees the small shelly fossils as a solution to the missing animals, missing ancestral animals. Uh, the problem for people who cite the small shelly fossils is that their meaning is very ambiguous. When you read um, experts like James Valentine and others, uh, they basically will, will say and admit that the small shelly fossils are very hard to diagnose and unclear what they really mean. In fact, even Charles Marshall, in one of his uh, earlier papers, he calls the small shelly fossils largely problematic and hard to diagnose even at the phylum level. So it's not clear exactly what they are. Um, and they certainly don't document some evolutionary sequence leading to the, the other Cambrian animals. What's also interesting is that um, experts like Charles Marshall, although they will cite the small shelly fossils when responding to Stephen Meyer in their other evolutionary writings, they don't treat the small shelly fossils as if they really in any way solve the Cambrian explosion. Um, in another paper, Charles Marshall, just like Stephen Meyer, actually defines the Cambrian explosion as a 10 million year event from about 530 to 520 million years ago. So why is it now he's sort of changing his tune and saying that these small shelly fossils from about 503 million years ago are part of the Cambrian explosion and they explain everything? That's certainly not what he and others have said in other venues. So the bottom line is that these small shelly fossils, they don't show the uh, gradual evolution of animals. They, they are ambiguous. It's generally not clear exactly what they mean. And most folks don't include them, including even some of Meyer's critics like Charles Marshall, do not include them in the Cambrian explosion. So we would say that they're interesting, and fine, we can talk about them, but at the end of the day, they really don't change the abruptness of the, uh, the rapid appearance of animal fossils in the Cambrian period, and they certainly don't solve the Cambrian explosion. Great. We got got just a couple minutes here before we bring Dr. Meyer on. I uh, just wanted to to have you address two two last points here, Casey. Chapter 22. Uh, I thought it might be good just to talk about this for a minute. Uh, Darwin defenders love Donald Prothero's uh, Amazon review. Uh, I thought that might be good because it's probably a popular <laughs> review that a lot of people have read. And then lastly, Chapter 26 on hostile responses change a thoughtful reader. Sure. Yeah. So uh, let's get chapter 22 really quick. Donald Prothero was a geology professor at Occidental College in Los Angeles. He's a very well-known writer and also a textbook author. I actually used uh, at least a couple of his textbooks during my college courses uh, when I studied earth sciences and paleontology when I was in college. In fact, I used one of his paleontology textbooks for a, a paleontology class I took. So he's a very good scientist. Wow. When it comes to uh, the evolution issue, though, he tends to uh, be one of these guys that uses a lot of nasty uh, personal attacks and nasty rhetoric against uh, proponents of intelligent design. And he has a long history of doing this. So, you know, again, just because somebody is a credible person, like a professor of geology, like Donald Prothero, does not mean that he's immune from the coming of that temptation to use this nasty form of personal attack against uh, ID proponents. And so he certainly did that. In his review of Darwin's Doubt, I won't even go through all the, the nasty names and nasty things that he said about Steve Meyer. Let's just look at his arguments and see if they hold up. Well, Dr. Prothero was a great example of somebody who 
failed to engage with Stephen Meyer's uh, central arguments. Basically, he failed to engage with the things that Stephen Meyer did say, and then he accused Meyer of saying all these things that Meyer didn't say. So, I mean, it, it's really quite amusing to read this review. Uh, you see that, uh, that Donald Prothero uh, claims that Meyer dismisses these fossils called the Ediacaran fauna, even though Meyer devotes an entire chapter to discussing them in Chapter 4. Um, he says that Ivy is a God of the Gaps argument, when Meyer actually goes to great pains in his writings to show why Ivy is not a God of the Gaps argument. Um, and he claims that Meyer is saying that uh, Stephen Jay Gould claimed that evolution doesn't occur when Meyer said absolutely nothing of the kind. Uh, and then he, he, again, cited these other um, ways that evolutionists have tried to explain away the Cambridge explosion through what's called the molecular clock hypothesis. But somehow, Donald Pro- so Donald Prothero cites the molecular clock and fights, I'm sorry, he faults Stephen Meyer for not dealing with this. But if you read Chapter 5 of Darwin's Doubt, the entire chapter is devoted to talking about the molecular clock arguments. And one of Steve Meyer's main points is that molecular clock data is a great conflict with the fossil evidence. And actually, molecular clock data is sort of all over the place, and it really does not tell you anything clearly. It's certainly not a solution of the Cambridge explosion because all these different molecular clock studies disagree with each other, and they don't even have a consensus view. Um, so essentially, with Donald Prothero many of his objections to Steve Meyer was that, well, Meyer didn't say this or didn't address this point when Meyer actually did address that point, or he would say Meyer shouldn't have said this when Meyer never said that thing. So it's sort of, you know, putting words in Meyer's mouth that he didn't say and taking words out of Meyer's mouth that he did say. So it, was, it was really did not seem like Donald Prothero very carefully read uh, the book Darwin's Doubt. But I think, the, for me, the most uh, interesting part of Donald Prothero's review was that he claimed that the Cambrian explosion was an 80-million-year event that is, uh, uh, that is simply an artifact of an imperfect fossil record and that it can easily, easily be explained by normal evolutionary mechanisms. Well, other Cambrian experts directly disagree with Donald Prothero, and so I cited um, the book by Erwin and Valentine I mentioned earlier, The Cambrian Explosion where they actually agree with Steve Meyer and disagree with Donald Prothero on those three points. They say that the Cambrian explosion was only about a 10-million-year event. They say that it was a real event and not merely an artifact of, of an incomplete fossil record. And they say that actually standard evolutionary mechanisms cannot explain what we see in the Cambrian explosion because we have too much diversity appearing too rapidly. And the, the greatest irony here is that Donald Prothero actually recommends that people read Erwin and Valentine's book, The Cambridge Explosion, as a resource uh, that shows why Stephen Meyer is wrong. And my wow. response was, yes, definitely do read uh, Erwin and Valentine's book, The Cambridge Explosion. It's a wonderful book. It's a, the best up-to-date treatment of an evolutionary view of the Cambridge Explosion. And by the way, obviously they're evolutionists, but when it comes to just the, the, the basic fossil record question of whether the Cambrian explosion was a real event, how long it was, and whether we can explain it through normal evolutionary mechanisms, they come down completely on Meyer's side rather than Donald Prothero's side. So I don't know if Donald Prothero read that book very well carefully before he cited that one either. So it was interesting to see, you know, again, you find an interesting correlation, Devin, that sort of the more nasty and incendiary the rhetoric uh, and the name-calling gets, 
the poorer the quality of the arguments that you see from the critics. But you know, these, uh, these are yeah. top evolutionary scientists. I mean, Donald Prothero is a renowned evolution textbook author. I used two wow. of his evolution textbooks when I was in college. So this is the best that they've been able to marshal in response to Darwin's doubt. And just to close it up, you know, you've mentioned Chapter 26, talking about uh, how thoughtful, uh, you know, harsh responses converted a thoughtful reader to being pro-ID. That's the gentleman I mentioned earlier who saw these nasty, intemperate, um, uncivil responses from, from some of the critics of ID responding to Stephen Meyer's arguments. And they said, you know what? This tells us something. This doesn't actually say that Stephen Meyer is this evil, dishonest person. What it shows is that these people, really these critics, do not have good responses. And it actually made him come much closer to an ID camp. And uh, it was interesting that that person who who uh, told the story of being sort of con- converted to ID, so to speak, because of the hostile responses of ID critics. He's actually a pastor of a very big, influential church in California. And I dialogued with him. He's a really nice guy, very thoughtful guy who cares a lot about science. And I, I think it's great that he, as a pastor, he's interested in these scientific, scientific questions and that he has sort of the discernment to see, okay, look, just because somebody's calling you names doesn't mean that they're right. And I think that's a good lesson for us to take from, from maybe this experience of seeing the responses from critics to Darwin's doubt. All right, Casey, you've done a, a wonderful job. Really appreciate uh, your knowledge and your expertise. And uh, I think we got you coming back in a few weeks to do a little 30-minute segment for us and kind of give us the latest news and that that's going on in the world of ID. But, uh, folks, uh, this is a great book. We're going to continue the conversation uh, in just a moment with Dr. Meyer. Um, Casey, anything else you, you wanted to add here before we wrap up? No, thanks so much, Devin. I appreciate you having me on. And, again, if folks are interested in picking up a copy of Debating Darwin's Doubt, you can find it on Amazon.com. You can also find Steve Meyer's original book, Darwin's Doubt, available on Amazon.com. So go to either go to Amazon to pick up either book. And uh, appreciate you having me on, Devin. Absolutely. Until next time. All right, folks, right, we're care. just going to go ahead and – Uh, take a quick break and we will be right back with Dr. Stephen Meyer as we look at the uh, some of the chapters he has written in Darwin's death so stay with us you're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg how can we know that God exists well there are many arguments for the existence of God but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. When Charles Darwin finished his great masterpiece, The Origin of Species, he thought he had explained every clue but one. And the clue that he knew he hadn't explained, the piece of evidence that he knew he hadn't explained, 
was this absence of ancestral fossils prior to the emergence of the first animal forms, the first forms of animal life. The book is the story of Darwin's doubt, of his own doubt about the Cambrian explosion and what's become of it. new function, what do you have to give it? Code? Software? Instructions? Okay. All, all correct. Yes, check, check, check. Information. All right? And it turns out the same thing. This is the great discovery of 20th century biology. The same thing is true in life. If you want to build an organism, you've got to have DNA to build proteins, proteins to serve as cell types, cell types to make organs and tissues, and organs and tissues to make body plants. You've got basically an engineering problem now. And the Cambrian explosion, more than anything else in the history of life, speaks to that problem because it's the, it's the first origin of the major animal forms. All right, folks, and that was the commercial for... Uh, Darwin's Doubts, uh, the book, and we are joined with Dr. Stephen Meyer. Let me give a little bit about, a little information about Dr. Meyer. Uh, he has received his Ph.D. in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge, a former geophysicist and college professor. He now directs the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. Uh, in addition to his book, Darwin's Doubt, and his work on debating Darwin's Doubt uh, that we're going to be talking about tonight, he also has authored Signature in the Cell, DNA, and the Evidence of Intelligent Design. And uh, just a, a brilliant man. Uh, Dr. Meyer, are you there? I'm here. It's great to be with you, Devin. Wow, very good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this interview for for quite some time, so it's really good to have you on. Yeah, I've been enjoying listening to your com your conversation with uh, the uh, brilliant and effervescent Casey Luskin. He's uh, one of our key guys up here. He's just a fantastic uh, talent. Yes, very passionate. You can tell about uh, his job and passionate about truth. It's really always a good good time having him on for sure. Uh, Darwin's Doubt, do you want to just kind of give a little bit of uh, background, I guess, as to, to why you wrote that book and kind of what the, the, the purpose that book is, is addressing? Yeah, there's actually a little bit of a humorous story behind the, the uh, decision to, to work on this topic, the, the topic of the Cambrian explosion and, uh, and critiquing uh, uh, modern forms of Darwinian thought. My first book was on the origin of the very first life, and it addressed the issue of how you get from simple non-living chemicals to the first living cell. 
And in evolutionary theory, theories that address that question are known as chemical evolutionary theories, or sometimes they're called theories of evolutionary abiogenesis, uh, life from non-life. And uh, I argued in that book that the information stored in the DNA molecule necessary to build that uh, the, the simplest first living cell was itself something that could not be explained as a result of undirected chemical processes of various kinds. And I went into a fairly extensive detail looking at different proposals that had been made to try to explain how you got from simple non-living chemicals to the first cell and showed that in each case the problem, there were many problems, but there was a common problem for each scenario, and that was that these scenarios were unable to explain the origin of the code, the information in the DNA molecule that's necessary to build the proteins that in turn keep cells alive. So if you want to explain the origin of the first life, you've got to explain the origin of the, the code in the DNA and, uh, and or another molecule that stores information called RNA. And I, I showed for various reasons that none of the proposals that had been made to explain the origin of the first life from simple chemical beginnings had succeeded in explaining the origin of the necessary information. And I, I then went on to argue for reasons we can talk about more in more detail later that um, a better explanation is that the, that information must have arisen from a, a designing intelligence or mind in part because we know of only one cause for the origin of information, especially when we find it in a digital form. Um, interestingly, a lot of the critics of that first book didn't respond to the argument that I made. They acted as if or I had been critiquing biological evolutionary theory, which actually starts with a living cell and then tries to explain how you get new forms of life arising from simpler pre-existing forms. But they didn't really address the argument that I made, which is that you can't get from chemistry to code. And uh, many of the critics said, well, yes, you can. Um, all you need is natural selection and random variation and, and uh, uh, the processes that Darwin discussed. Well, Darwin very clearly, very explicitly, disavowed any explanation for the origin of the first life. And natural selection as a process doesn't really kick in until there is a, uh, a living organism um, that can generate uh, offspring that can compete with each other for survival, et cetera, et cetera. Evolution, which I did address in the book, is pretty much a non-starter. And the critics of the book uh, treated the book or reacted to the book as if it were arguing against biological evolution, when in fact it was an argument against chemical evolution, which um, is, is really a, a separable question. Uh, so you know, this is a really uh, a kind of an odd uh, situation in that uh, the, 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 the critics of the book were responding to a book I didn't write. Now, as it <laughs> happens, I'm profoundly skeptical that even starting with a living organism, a, a first cell or even a primitive animal or what have you, that natural selection acting on random mutations can generate new information. And so in the preface of the new book, I said that since the, the, the critics had accused me of writing a book I didn't write, I thought I made a, may as well write it and, and then let them have a go <laughs> at that. So that, that's what led to the, the discussion of, or, or to the, my taking on the, 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 the information problem in the context of biological evolutionary theory. It was, of course, something I'd thought about for a number of years, and I had written uh, 
long uh, ac- uh, scientific articles uh, sketching out the, the thesis that later became the book Darwin's Doubt. But uh, it was somewhat ironic that uh, the, the main criticism of book one was actually directed at a book I hadn't yet written. And I just decided, well, let, let's let's take this head on and, and, and see where it leads. Yeah, I know. Uh, one of the things is, is when you write a book, uh, boy, do you do you make a splash with it, right? There's all kind of pushback and people writing. And uh, talk a little bit about that. I know with, with um, Darwin's death, when that came out, it, it was really um, having a lot of reviewers and a lot of people giving some pushback and some criticisms. And uh, it seems to be pretty, un- some of it seems to be pretty unfairly. Well, you know, I, I'm always uh, uh, delighted, really, when people do engage uh, the, the, the argument in the book or the, the ideas in the book. Uh, the last thing an author wants to be is ignored, so that, that's good. Um, and we had a number of really nice endorsements from, uh, of the book from very high-ranking scientists, a geneticist at Harvard, a, a paleontologist and evolutionary theorist at the Max Planck Institute, uh, and uh, a leading paleontologist who works on the Cambrian explosion has written a leading book with the Columbia University Press. So, so it wasn't as if uh, all the reactions to the book were negative by any means, but those uh, uh, reactions to the book that were critical were uh, very interesting from the standpoint of um, rhetoric, I guess you'd say, in the, in the, the, the manner in which uh, the critics express their disagreement was often very emotional. It was often laden with a lot of really uh, uh, kind of ad hominem and accusatory language. And very often they were not substantive. They were certainly, even the, even the ones who claimed to be making scientific critiques, as I know Casey shared with you earlier, were oftentimes critiquing things I didn't say in the book, or they mm-hmm. were making critiques about very minor peripheral issues like the classification of uh, animals, um, rather than the substantive argument of the book, which has to do with how you construct animals, how the evolutionary process would construct them, and the problem of generating biological information uh, when when, when the theory is relying on an essentially random method of generating new variation. That's what random mutations are, are random changes in the uh, characters in the genetic text, and um, anyone who's done any computer programming knows that if you take a section of functional computer code and you start randomly changing the zeros and ones, you're not going to generate a new operating system or a new program. You're going to degrade the information that's there already, and yet the Darwinian mechanism relies on just that kind of random, uh, ra- uh, randomizing um, effects or randomizing changes in the, the key characters in in the genetic text, and that that doesn't seem for many reasons, which I explain with some mathematical rigor in the book, uh, plausible. And increasingly, many scientists doubt that the mutation selection mechanism has the creative power to generate new body plans and new cell types and the new proteins and DNA molecules that you would need to build a new animal. So a lot of the criticism seemed rather disingenuous in that it was not focusing on the main argument of the book, not focusing on the problems with neo-Darwinian theory, which uh, are mainly about the the construction, the means by which that mechanism would construct a new animal 
which is increasingly a problem acknowledged by evolutionary theorists themselves. Yeah, so the, the book is really kind of looking at, um, I think Casey said there was two points. One, um, there really didn't seem to be a whole lot of uh, fossil evidence for the uh, transitional, um, I guess, fossils. And then secondly, whether or not the mechanisms of mutations and natural selection and that were sufficient to bring about uh, the type of changes I guess we would expect to see. Is that, that kind of the, the main argument yeah, right. in the in, book? In the book? In the book I looked at, yeah, in the book I, 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 I tried to write it not only as a scientific argument, it definitely is that, but also as a mystery story because it was and has been an enduring mystery in evolutionary theory going all the way back to Darwin's time, and it's a, it's a pretty good yarn. It's a good story. And um, so I, I tried to unfold my, uh, my uh, argument in the context of a story uh, an overarching narrative, and part of the the story is, in the first place, the mystery of the missing fossils. That you have this abrupt appearance of the complex animal forms in the Middle Cambrian, and prior to that, you have, as Casey mentioned, you've got some small shelly fossils that are enigmatic and bear no clear affinities to the animal forms that arise later. Certainly not to they provide no connections to the vast majority of the forms that arise later in the Cambrian. Then um, before that, you've got some uh, e even more enigmatic uh, organisms called the Ediacaran fauna, which are probably not even animals and, again, bear no clear affinities to the complex animal forms that arise later. So as you go into the Precambrian layers, find the ancestral forms that ought to be there if Darwin's account and his depiction of the history of life is correct, because he depicted the history of life as a great branching tree in which simple forms have gradually morphed into more and more complex forms, eventually giving rise to things like the first animal forms. And um, the, the fossil record just doesn't show that. Instead of a, of a tree-like picture, instead what you see is something more like a lawn, or as one Chinese paleontologist put it, you see Darwin's tree turned upside down. The major forms of life with their, their differences from each other are present right from the very beginning of the the uh, uh, origin of animals on planet Earth. So that's the first mystery. Where, where are those ancestor, ancestral forms? Darwin thought that subsequent fossil finds would uncover them in the 150 years uh, since the publication of the origin, 155 years now. Uh, that, has not, that has not actually occurred. Those forms have not been turned up. They've not been found. And so increasingly it's difficult to argue that the, the missing ancestors are an artifact of either incomplete sampling of the fossil record or incomplete preservation. And that, that's, that's mystery one. In some ways, though, it's not the more uh, fundamental problem. The deeper problem is how would the evolutionary process construct these complex forms of animal life with, uh, uh, example, in the trilobites, uh, uh, really sophisticated body designs and all the different animal forms. How would the mutation selection mechanism do that, especially given how little time there was available to accomplish the, that construction? Uh, and there I like to say this is essentially an engineering problem. Is this mechanism uh, capable? Does it have the causal power to generate the kinds of form and structures that we see arising in that uh, crucial event that paleontologists call the Cambrian Explosion? And for many reasons, I argued that, um, that that the mechanism does not have that power. And many, many evolutionary biologists are acknowledging the same thing. So later in the book, I looked at the, the half dozen or so 
new theories of evolution that have been proposed in the last 20 years uh, to compensate for the perceived lack of creative power in the mutation selection mechanism, where mutation and selection are the mechanism that we all learn about when we learn about modern Darwinian theory in our college textbooks. Many people don't know that leading evolutionary theorists are openly saying the mechanism lacks the necessary creative power, and for that reason they're looking for new mechanisms, trying to formulate new ideas about how that would happen. And the theory is there, there is really no established textbook theory anymore. It's really the wild, wild west. And um, before I got into presenting my positive case, I wanted my readers to know that uh, the, the, the theory is in big trouble and that there's a huge disparity between these popular presentations of the theory that you find with people like Richard Dawkins and, and the like, Bill Nye, the science guy, on the one hand, right. and the actual status of the theory as you find it in the peer-reviewed scientific literature within not just biology, but within evolutionary biology itself. Yeah, I was listening to you, to you give a talk today uh, on on the Internet, and you were talking about kind of the popular way it's presented compared to uh, kind of the seeing the warts and stuff like that of the theory uh, in the journals, in the scientific journals themselves, so... Well, I have an interesting experience. Oh. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go, go right ahead, yep. Well, I, I had an interesting experience back in 2009. I was asked to testify before the Texas State Board of Education, and uh, the the board was at the time considering a, a proposal to encourage teachers to teach the strengths and weaknesses of scientific theories, especially those that were controversial. And uh, this seemed like sweet reason to most people, but the the, uh, the Darwin-only science lobby turned out in force, and one of my opposite numbers at the hearing, uh, Eugenie Scott, who was then the president of the National Center for Science Education, the Darwin-only science education lobby in, in uh, Oakland, California, she, she testified at the hearing, but before the hearing she had been quoted in the Dallas Morning News as saying, this standard cannot be applied to evolutionary theory because there are no weaknesses in the theory. Now, I presented into evidence at that, at that hearing a hundred peer-reviewed scientific articles from wow. leading biologists who were raising precisely questions and expressing skepticism of, of wow. neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory, which is the theory that's taught in the textbooks. And so, you know, there's kind of a, a blatant bluff going on. And I, 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 in the book, did something rather mischievous, and I, I, I described in some detail these new theories that are being proposed. I also critiqued them and showed that they also were unable to account for the origin of the, in, the crucial information necessary to build a new animal. But uh, just the fact of those other theories shows that there, there certainly are weaknesses in the standard textbook theory that we all learn. And... Um, and I think that that alone should open our minds that, to the possibility that there's a lot more of interest in this debate than people are often told. That's right. Folks, if, if you would like to call and talk with Dr. Meyer, ask a question, uh, the number is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Uh, I thought maybe, Dr. Meyer, if you didn't mind, we could look at a, look at some of the chapters that you contributed to in uh, debating Darwin's Doubt. Uh, chapter 4, I believe it is, uh, is a chapter titled Matsky, Cladistics, and Missing Ancestors. 
Yeah, well, I, I overheard uh, a bit of Casey telling you about this. Uh, Maskey was this young grad student who wrote the long review of the book that was published the first day the book was available for purchase. And um, he he seemed to have had a pre-existing bee in his bonnet about um, a mutation and reconstruction of the uh, what is called phylogenetics, reconstructing the history of life based on the comparison of traits of the animals that we have in front of us. It's in some ways used to compensate for an absence of fossil evidence. And I wrote a long chapter critiquing Matsky's claims about this and uh, uh, went into some, some detail. Um, perhaps the most important thing to say about that um, crit- criticism of the book was that Matsky uh, scarcely mentioned the main and central argument of the book, which had to do with the origin of of both genetic and higher forms of information. And so, you know, even if he were right, and I uh, contested that very strenuously, he really didn't address the main argument in the book and couldn't therefore be uh, judged to have refuted it. So, um, you know, there's a lot more to say about the, the, the cladistic argument, but it, 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 it's essentially trying to say, reconstruct the order in which animal forms arose by examining the the different traits that they manifest. It'd be like looking at all the different kinds of socks you have in your sock drawer and then trying to figure out, um, based on the similarities and differences, which were constructed first, which were constructed second. And, of course, the cladistics people assume that all those forms had a common ancestor, so they, they want to tell a story showing that uh, or in which one form of life not only came first before another, but it was the ancestor of the other. And um, it's it's really only persuasive if you already assume that all the forms of life shared a common ancestor. It assumes that. It doesn't establish it. So even on its own terms and trying to compensate for the absence of, of fossil ancestors, it really doesn't do a very good job. It's assuming the very point at issue, namely that all organisms uh, uh, evolved from a common ancestor and uh, that's the point they need to prove. Not they can't just help themselves to that point. <laughs> right, folks. And there's there's actually two chapters I think one by Dr. Meyer there and one by Casey that's that's dealing with that with the cladistics. So uh, be sure to get the book for yeah, more detail colleague, on uh, that. Yeah, sure, sure. I was just sorry to interrupt. Our colleague David Berlinski, who's brilliant, also had a really good chapter on on the topic as well. So well, wonderful, well covered. Yeah, I love uh, love love Dr. Bolinsky. He is great. He doesn't hold back, does he? <laughs> well, no, but he's awfully he's awfully precise in whatever he writes yes. about. So he's he got is. a you know, he he can be he can be uh, and uh, you, you really don't want to tangle with him if you don't have if you haven't done your homework. But Berlinski always does his homework, and uh, right. he, he had a very very. A detailed critique of of uh, the argument from what's called cladistics and a number of the other arguments that were made as well. And uh, but it was kind of fun. It was uh, you know like going back to the Beatles. I could buy with a little help from my friends, you know. So th- <laughs> there was such a huge outpouring of reaction to the book initially that it really took a team effort to make sure that we had all the bases covered in responding to the different critiques. Many of them were um, you know very frivolous, not substantive. The one I appreciated most was that it was was uh, written by the paleontologist Charles Marshall from the University of California Berkeley. He 
reviewed the book in Science in 2013, about three, four months after the book came out. And it was a breath of fresh air because Marshall actually did try to respond to the main information argument of the book. And he said, look, Meyer argues that you need a lot of new information to build these Cambrian animals. But he said, that's not our current understanding. Our current understanding is that all that would need to happen would be for the evolutionary process to rewire the networks of genes, which are called gene regulatory networks, the networks of genes that control how other pre-existing genes are expressed. And that sounded like a pretty substantive critique until you broke it down and realized that the the gene regulatory networks, of of which I had written and he was talking about, are networks of genes, each of which are full of genetic information. And those those networks of genes function like integrated circuits, and they control the timing and expression of other genes during the development of animals. But those other genes that they control are also full of genetic information. So Marshall didn't give an explanation for the origin of genetic information. He just begged the question as to the origin of several key sources of unexplained pre-existing genetic information. And I thought that was really interesting because you know his his review was otherwise thoughtful and uh, respectful. It was overall negative. He said a few nice things about the book, the way it was written, the paleontology, interestingly enough. But on this key, crucial question, he did beg to differ. But his argument, I thought, uh, also begged the question because it didn't really account for the origin of information in the first place. It just presupposed unexplained sources of both genetic and other forms of information. So I think that's really where the argument stands between the ID people and the the leading people in evolutionary biology. And I don't think you need a PhD in biology to see that the other side really hasn't answered our our key critique. Wonderful. And and folks, you can read more about that in chapters 10 and 11. He, uh, Dr. Meyer kind of deals with that uh, a little more. Uh, I need to take a quick two minute break, folks. Uh, The number to call in, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907, We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or a comment. And we will be back. We'll look at uh, the God of the Gaps fallacy, uh, as well as uh, some of the clarifying issues and his uh, Dr. Meyer's response to BioLogos. So stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome to the One Minute, Apolo- one minute Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? How does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being. Where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making around on the Internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, we can do everything you can do. God says, oh, that's interesting. Show me. And then they say, well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and, and as they're about to continue, God says, well, wait a second, get your own dust. Okay, now that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers. And design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns there which point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is if you imagine a pan balance. And you've got a bale that includes one side. And you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds. It could be five pounds. It could be a million pounds. 
And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. But it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Dar Darwinian evolution, and ev uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot. It takes you some way. You know, it's closer to the kingdom. But if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me, amongst many of his other books. All right, folks, welcome back, and we are joined with Dr. Stephen Meyer, and we're looking at his uh, book, Debating Darwin's Doubt, which came out, I believe, July 21st, and it was kind of a response to a lot of the criticisms of his uh, original book, Darwin's Doubt, and uh, would highly recommend you pick those books up. We'll put a link to it on our on our page there, so you can get it. It's at Amazon or wherever you prefer. Uh, kind of as a as a side note, Dr. Meyer, I uh, am a Ratio Christi director in up here in South Carolina, and we're going to be using your uh, True You series this semester. So we're really really looking forward into jumping oh, into that. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. All right. That, so, that uh, uh, was a lot of fun in that project. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, made exactly for something like uh, Ratio Christie with uh, college students and and looking at that with intelligent design. Do you see that it's it's does it seem like it's it's gaining popularity and and gaining uh, a lot of people's interests? Yeah, I think so. Actually, it's uh, it's quite contrary to the way the media has portrayed this, especially since. Uh, 2005, when there was a high-profile court case in a little area of central Pennsylvania called Dover, and uh, there was a school board there that proposed um, that teachers should have to tell their their students about a, a book discussing intelligent design in the library. The school board members who justified the policy um, did so by a very explicit of religious belief and uh, we knew this was going to be trouble and asked them to withdraw the policy it was not framed right and or justified properly and uh, it, it was struck down um, and uh, by the court it was a, a court case that only had um, applicability to this district in central Pennsylvania but nevertheless there was a lot of gloating afterwards that the this the the uh, US Federal courts had found intelligent design to be unconstitutional because it wasn't science and because it was religion. Now, of course, that's not something a federal judge can actually decide. That's above the pay grade of a, of a judge. And um, right. in any case, um, since that time, there have been uh, numerous new books that have come out. Uh, Behe's book, Edge of Evolution, uh, which has a very powerful argument, came out in 2007. Uh, the, the books that I've been, the, the, the two books that I've written, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, came out in uh, nine and 2013. There was the film Expelled that went into the theaters, 
And what we've been finding is that we're getting a tremendous uh, amount of interest in the work that we're doing from younger scientists and science postdocs and grad students and uh, wow. you know, juniors and seniors who are looking to be involved in science. And th this is really how scientific revolutions take place. It's not so much that you end up persuading the old guard. We have persuaded some of the old guard, but uh, typically that doesn't happen very often. Instead, what happens <laughs> is you have a changing of the guard. And we're, we're seeing that happen, and we're seeing um, there's tremendous international interest in this. There are people in major research universities uh, who are now established professors who are doing research from an ID perspective, investigating questions that either the Darwinists uh, would not investigate or have, have investigated and come to, come to the wrong conclusion on. Uh, we think intelligent design, not all, there's not only a powerful argument for intelligent design, but it guides a lot of research questions. It has what scientists call heuristic value. Um, it's a guide to discovery. There's a huge international uh, movement of intelligent design scientists in Brazil, a big group wow. in the United Kingdom, many on the continent. Uh, so it's, uh, I, I think it really, there's a tremendous amount of momentum. It's not something the media has reported on, and many people, because of the Dover trial, really have only one um, uh, exposure to ideas about intelligent design, and that was that has to do with this ill-fated um, court case. But there's a lot more to the story, and certainly a lot more to the argument than, than came out in that case, or as, as covered by the media. And I, I'm very optimistic about the future. We have a summer program for students, and every year we get uh, more and more applicants and really quality young people who want to know about this and uh, and who are are thinking along these lines, oftentimes. Yeah, well, I will be one of those applicants <laughs> this uh, next summer, so I'm, I'm look forward to hopefully being able to do that. But uh, it's really good to see how excellent how excellent. I yeah it's, it's it's amazing to see how ID really is growing and what seems to be really pushing it is it's just really um, as our science is getting better and the more we're discovering it just seems like that is really kind of what is. Uh, pushing intelligent design and really just showing a lot of the, uh, I guess, the problems with with the standard theory of, of evolution. Well, absolutely, and maybe I should. I, I really haven't explained the, the 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 evidential and logical basis of the positive case for intelligent design, but I would build off of, of what you, of your comment in that there are so many things that are being discovered that are are really. Um, very powerful. Uh, you may have seen recently that uh, there is that inside cells, uh, scientists have discovered something that's functioning like a power grid connecting the, uh, the little turbines called ATP synthases, little molecular machines that generate the, the, uh, the energy storing molecules called AD, ATP. And uh, so you have, you have little turbines that are connected by something that's functioning like a power grid to get energy to the right places as it's needed in, in cells and in animal tissues. And it's just incredible, you know? So anyway, the, the, the positive basis for ID um, really, I think starts in the 1950s and sixties. And this is where I would be talking about in biology. That there's a separate case to be made in physics from what's called the fine tuning of the laws and constants of physics. But in 1953, of course, Watson and Crick elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule. Uh, and f four years later, Crick proposes something called the sequence hypothesis, which in which he 
he uh, proposes that the four chemical subunits that run along the inside of the twisting double helix molecule, these four subunits are called bases, and he argues that these four bases are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text or digital characters like zeros and ones in a section of, uh, of machine code or software, which is to say it's not the chemical properties or the shapes of these chemical subunits that matters. It's the specific arrangement of these elements in accord with an independent symbol convention that allows them to convey and store information. And this is really a stop press moment in the history of biology because uh, Crick's hypothesis is subsequently confirmed by a whole series of experiments as uh, scientists elucidate what's known as the gene expression system. And it becomes clear that inside living organisms, there is a complex information processing system that is uh, expressing information stored in a, in a digital form. And that raises a, a huge question, which is where did all that information come from? And both branches of evolutionary theory, as I show in my two books, in Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, have stumbled over that question. Neither have been able to explain the origin of that information. And yet we know from experience that there is a cause, a kind of cause, which is capable of generating digital or alphabetic code, and that is intelligence. In fact, whenever we see information, and we trace it back to its source, whether it's in a, a section of computer code or in a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a newspaper headline, invariably that information came from an intelligent source. So whenever we see information in, so the, the discovery of information at the foundation of life in, in the DNA molecule inside living cells, I argue is powerful evidence for a designing intelligence. This isn't an argument from ignorance. It's not an argument based on what we don't know, it's based on what we do know about the, the operation of living cells and also what we know about the cause and effect structure of the world, that there is only one known cause which has ever been demonstrated to generate new information, and that's mind or intelligence or conscious and rational activity, however you want to think of it. Yeah, I think that's a, really it's a perfect lead in Chapter 12. Uh, you have the, the God of the gaps fallacy, so I know that's really kind of what you just touched on, but maybe for those who are not exactly familiar with the with that type of language, what is the God of the gaps fallacy that uh, ID theorists are constantly accused of? Well, the fallacy as it's presented is that uh, we say when we have a gap in our scientific knowledge, when we haven't figured something out, we say, well, that God must have done it. And then when we figure out what's really causing it, then our then the domain in which God is relevant to discourse just shrinks. And so many people have said we should never talk about God or uh, in, in science and uh, or the relationship between science and theology or anything like that. We should keep science sequestered from any discussions of faith. Um, you know, so, well, maybe so, maybe not, but uh, the, 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 the case for intelligent design is not a, a, an argument based on gaps. There are gaps, for example, in the fossil record, if you're presupposing that the Darwinian tree of life is the correct picture of the history of life, a better way to put it, a more neutral way to put it, is not that there are gaps or not that there's a problem with Darwinian theory. It's just that the fossil record shows discontinuity. Uh, not all the lines of the lineages are connected. And so that raises a question. Uh, were they all connected or were they not? Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Um, 
but in any case, the, the case for intelligent design is not based on what we don't know. It's not based on, it's not a, a formal, ar uh, an argument from ignorance, which is an informal fallacy in logic. It's based on what we do know about the structure of cells, about the information-bearing properties of DNA, and what we know about the cause and effect patterns that we see in the world. We see various kinds of causes at work, producing various kinds of effects. And in the case of information, when we, we are seeing an informational effect, information is always traceable back to an intelligent cause, not an unguided, undirected natural process. So the discovery of information is, again, powerful evidence of, of that kind of a cause. We, because there's only one known cause of the origin of functional digital code, when we find functional digital code, we can infer with confidence that a mind played a role. So that's, that's, that's the basic argument. It's not an argument based on ignorance, but rather based on our current best state of knowledge. Yeah, not based on what we don't know, but what, what we actually do know as our science is getting better. Uh, chapter 30 here, uh, you have a chapter uh, titled, Does Lightning Fast Evolution Solve the Cambrian Enigma? Yeah, um, I can't remember what that one was about. I think I wrote 10 or 12 um, chapters in you that. You did. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I'll have to go back and look. At, yeah, Sorry about that. Oh, no, that's, that's no problem at all. Maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of some of the competing uh, ideas between Richard Dawkins and uh, Stephen Gould. And uh, Gould, some of their ideas, uh, how they, some of the conflict between those two. Well, uh, Dawkins is a classical neo-Darwinist and believes that the random mutation natural selection mechanism is completely sufficient to build new forms of life. And because that mechanism must work on small incremental variations, very small mutations in the DNA, it takes a long time to work and requires essentially a very gradual uh, transformation in the, when any major new innovation takes place. It's, it, it, it is... Uh, necessarily committed to gradualism. Um, Gould was um, increasingly skeptical in his career of the, the classical neo-Darwinian picture of the history of life, especially its commitment to gradualism, because what he saw in the fossil record were these big discontinuous jumps that we've been talking about. And he said at some point, the paleontologist has to stop letting evolutionary theory dictate to him or her what, uh, what what is in the fossil record. The fossil record shows discontinuity, not uh, gradual transformation. So um, his colleague, Niles Eldridge, at one point had a, an epiphany in a, in a laundromat when he was doing his PhD work in, uh, in Michigan. He was studying trilobites, and he saw that they just, they just flat out didn't change much over time. Uh, and there was no directional change, just slight variation back and forth around the mean. And, and uh, he finally realized, that, as he put it, that stasis is data, non-changing, uh, uh, changelessness in form is what the fossil record is showing. And we've got to treat that as such and not allow our preconceptions about the Darwinian picture of the history of life to uh, shape our view of what actually happened. And they came up with a different evolutionary theory that was known as punctuated equilibrium that attempted to take seriously these uh, sudden uh, geologically abrupt appearances of new form, those they called punctuations, and then the long periods of changelessness they called stasis uh, or equilibrium, 
And they said that's 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 what that's how the evolutionary process works. Uh, now the problem with their theory was that they did do a better job of describing the, the the pattern in the fossil record, but the problem with their theory was they could never come up with a mechanism that was capable of generating that amount of new biological form and structure and formation in the time available as as uh, indicated by the fossil record. So while they were kind of a hot new idea in the late 70s and early 80s, by the time Gould died in, I think his last big book, uh, The Structure of Evolutionary Theory, was published in 2002, and he died, I think, very soon after. And by the time he wrote The Structure of Evolutionary Theory, he was pretty much acknowledging that the 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 mechanism which he had proposed called species selection, which was supposed to give you these bigger jumps, was itself based on good old-fashioned natural selection acting on random genetic mutations. And really, uh, so at the end of the day, he had nothing new by way of a, a more powerful mechanism to offer. And so these big jumps remained every bit as mysterious on his model as they had been in neo-Darwinism. So why was why was I guess Dawkins was just not um, his I guess he felt like gold was undermining um, his view then of gradualism and that uh, yeah undermining was, the, the the orthodox view the true faith if you will yeah Dawkins' <laughs> problem is that he he is uh, his his theory you know his neo-Darwinian picture of the history of life doesn't match the fossil record nor does it, for that matter, provide an adequate mechanism for the generation of new information because it, again, relies on these uh, random mutational changes, which uh, in every way tend to degrade information rather than generate it. Um, Gould came up with a better picture, a description of the history of life, but had no mechanism to describe how that history would have taken place, how the big jumps in the history of life would have occurred. There's a a number of – there's an old aphorism – number of evolutionary biologists have been re-quoting, and it, it's the idea that natural selection explains the survival but not the arrival of the fittest. It does a good job of explaining things like modest changes in the size and shape of finch beaks in the Galapagos Islands. It doesn't do a good job at all of explaining where birds or, for that matter, animals in general came from in the first place. So it does a good job of explaining the small microevolutionary variations but not the large-scale macro innovations that occur in the history of life and which would require very large infusions of new uh, information and, and, uh, and genetic assembly instructions. Okay, wonderful. Uh, one of the last chapters you had written uh, in the book was your response to BioLogos. Uh, maybe take a few minutes to talk about what is theistic evolution, uh, what are some of the problems with it, and then um, well, you said in there about uh, clarifying some issues. So maybe talk a few minutes on that. Well, right. The, uh, the, the position of theistic evolution is espoused by groups like BioLogos and uh, Faraday Institute in the United Kingdom and other places is a, a, um, in some ways a difficult idea to grapple with because it hasn't been really clearly defined. The idea of theistic evolution is essentially that whatever the evolutionary biology community is saying about the evolutionary process uh, shouldn't uh, threaten us because uh, God can work through secondary causes and he must have worked through the evolutionary process to produce life. Well, that's all well and good as far as it goes, but 
the problem comes when you start to define the word evolution. Evolution can have several, several separate meanings, and within evolutionary theory, it does. It can mean simply change over time. There's no problem saying that God caused change over time. Certainly God can cause things to change. Uh, and uh, for, for biblical, create, uh, bi- biblical Christians, or uh, the, 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 the God of the Bible is recorded as having done such things. So that, there's no problem with that. But um, the, the Darwinian meaning of evolution, uh, there are two meanings associated with the, the, the term in Darwinian theory. One is the idea of continuous change over time, such that the history of life is best depicted as this universal branching tree. And whereas maybe God could cause continuous change, there are some good scientific reasons that you might be skeptical about the idea that the history of life is best, best depicted by a great branching tree, one of which is that the fossil record really doesn't uh, show that at all. Uh, instead, it shows this pattern of um, sudden appearance and, and stasis, as, the, as, as Gould and others pointed out. So, um, but, but that's the second thing you could mean by theistic evolution. It's not so much theologically problematic as it's as it is um, in this case scientifically um, problematic or at least uh, questionable. But the real problem for the theistic evolutionist comes with the the full blown Darwinian uh, idea that that uh, not only is the the change we see in the history of life best depicted by a tree of life, but also that the cause of that change is the unguided, undirected mechanism of natural selection acting on random genetic variations. It's part of the Darwinian um, argument, going all the way back to the third chapter in The Origin of Species, that the appearance of design in living organisms is the product, is, is first an illusion, and it is the product of the, the natural selection variation mechanism where natural natural selection is nature winnowing out variations that are not uh, advantageous and where nature is therefore effectively selecting the outcome and doing the work that heretofore biologists thought only human breeders could do. Um, and so Darwin's argument for natural selection in direct opposition to the idea of what's known as artificial selection, where say a rancher or a sheep herder would... Uh, select certain traits in offspring to maximize them over time and, and, and alter the, the features of, of a herd or a, um, a group of, of domesticated animals. Now, this was a well-known process, and Darwin said, well, basically nature can do what the, what the breeder does. And so Darwini- in Darwinian theory, because the, the mechanism is proposed as a, a, an explanation for apparent design, one that in fact... Uh, illustrates that the apparent design is an illusion, um, the Darwinian mechanism is necessarily an unguided, undirected process. That was the whole point of Darwin naming it natural selection as opposed to artificial or intelligent selection. So if you are a theistic evolutionist and you're committed to the full-blown Darwinian program or the modern neo-Darwinian program, which also attempts to explain away design with a slightly modified idea that natural selection acts on random mutations rather than uh, just generic variation, um, you got a problem because uh, if, that is if you're a theist uh, you, and your problem is either a logical problem or a theological problem. If you, if you say that God is guiding this unguided, undirected process, 
well, then it's no longer unguided and undirected, and therefore, uh, you, you know, you, you, this really is not either nonsensical, or if you really think that the process is guided, that's a form of intelligent design, and yet all the major theistic evolutionists have have repudiated intelligent design and says and said they're against it. So that's that's troubling. On the other hand, if you say that God isn't guiding this unguided process, and the process is in fact unguided, as the evolutionary establishment affirms based on the logic of Darwin's argument, um, then you've got a more of a theological problem. That is, if you're any kind of Orthodox Jew or Christian who believes that God was in some way involved in the creation, because uh, God is simply not doing anything. God is at best... Uh, existing, maybe watching from the mezzanine, maybe he's upholding the laws of nature, but as many of the the evolutionary biologists who think that the process is unguided have said of a theistic evolutionist like Ken Miller, uh, God would not know the outcome of this process. Uh, next time around, uh, maybe uh, human consciousness would arise in a big brain dinosaur. Uh, and God, God not controlling the process means that God doesn't know its outcome. And so you've got some really... Significant theolo- divergence or uh, 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 re- rejections of major theological um, God or God's activity in creation or God's uh, providence, his ability to know the future. So um, we have not been so much critiquing theistic evolution as calling on the proponents of theistic evolution to to define exactly what they mean. What 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 meaning of evolution is being affirmed by your synthesis between Darwinism and and uh, orthodox theology. If you mean the third meaning of evolution, the, the idea that mutation and selection are an unguided, undirected process that explain away the apparent design of living organisms, um, we think that's problematic, and it's, it can be problematic depending on, on, on how it's formulated. Um, is God directing that undirected process, or is he not directing it? Either way, it's it, it raises real, real uh, deep difficulties, logical or theological. So, uh, I, and I made some of those points in the in the response to the Biologos people. Wonderful, uh, two two wonderful, well, three wonderful books: both uh, Signature in the Cell, Darwin's Doubt, and Debating Darwin's Doubt. If you don't have these books, it really is a must-have, and uh, it's just a wealth of information and has really, I think, changed the game, so to speak, in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know if you're free to talk about it, but do you have any other other books or anything coming out that we can be looking for? Well, my colleagues have a great uh, uh, spate of productivity coming next year. Michael Denton's going to have a new book coming out. It's a sequel oh. to his groundbreaking book from the 1980s, which was called Evolution, A Theory and Crisis. It's That's going to right. be called Evolution's still a theory in crisis. He updates the argument. He's working on a second book as well um, that is looking at the design of the overall biosphere, applying a wow. fine-tuning approach to the, the the chemistry and physics of life, and it's really a fascinating and unique approach to this whole, whole discussion. My colleague Doug Axe has a new, a new book that will come out with Harper One, who also... Uh, is the publisher that that, uh, released my books. Um, Richard Sternberg, who has been working on a book um, about genomics called The Immaterial Genome. Uh, That should be out sometime next year as well. And um, 
Jonathan Wells has an updated uh, version of the book that he wrote a number of years ago about the icons of evolution. Oh, wow. Newer textbook icons that are being trot out to try to rescue the theory. So it's a, wow. that's not a, not a trifecta. It's a quadrifecta. We've got four, yeah. really, four of our top, uh, our top scientists coming out with really important books next year. So um, keep wow. if, for people that are interested, t- stay tuned to our website. One of the great things about the, the work we do at discovery is that it's not based on the, the work of one person. Uh, we're not uh, we're not a one man band, and we don't rely on just one one star. We have a lot of really good people who are part of a team, and um, and and so that that I think is uh, one of the the distinctives of the 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 research we do. That it's part, we have an, uh, an integrated and inter- interdisciplinary approach that involves a lot of scientists and philosophers of science developing these these arguments and insights. Well, thank you, Dr. Meyer, for coming on. Uh, just I can't thank you enough for your work and and everything you guys do. You guys have just um, radically, uh, you know, your work has changed my life. It's it's really what um, really made me see that uh, not only uh, are we told what to believe in the Bible, but uh, that there's good reasons and and arguments undergirding it. And so, uh, just. Thank you for for all you do, and uh, maybe we'd love to have you on and do signature in the cell sometime. And uh, well, you appreciate you your bet. time. Uh, yeah, thanks for for the opportunity to talk to your audience, and uh, thanks for all you're doing with those Ratio Christie chapters. And hope we see you next summer at our seminar. Yes. All right. Thank you, and God okay, bless. Take care. Yeah. Bye bye. Yeah. You too. Bye bye. All right, folks. Next week, uh, join us. We will have the uh, we'll have a one of our philosopher uh, friends on to talk about the debates of the 1930s uh, between the Christians and the atheists, Dr. Sadler. So join us for that. And until next time, uh, God bless. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.